0: Chapter Two, of Observations of an Orderly. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Observations of an Orderly by Ward Muir, Chapter Two, Life in the Orderly's Hut. In May nineteen fifteen, when I enlisted, the weather was beautiful. Consequently, the row of tin huts, to which I was introduced as my future address, for the duration, wore an attractive appearance. The sun shone upon their metallic sides and roofs. The shimmering foliage of tall trees and a fine field of grass, which made a background to the huts, were fresh and green and restful to the eye. Even the foreground of hard-trodden earth, the barrack square, was dry and clean. Betray no hint of its quagmire propensities under rain. Later on, when winter came, the cluster of huts could look dismal, especially before dawn on a wet morning, when the bugle-sounding parade had dragged us from warm beds, or in an afternoon thaw after snow, when the corrugated eaves wept torrents in the twilight, and one's feet, despite the excellence of army boots, were chilled by their wadings through slush. Meanwhile, however, the new recruit had nothing to complain of in the aspect of the housing accommodation which was offered him. Merely for amusement's sake he had often roughed it in quarters far less comfortable than these bare but well-built huts, which even proved on investigation to contain beds, an unexpected luxury. "'I'll put you in hut six,' said the sergeant-major. "'There's one empty bed.' It's the hut at the end of the line. Thereafter, hut six, was my home, and I hope I may never have a less pleasant one, or less good company for roommates. In these latter I was perhaps peculiarly fortunate, but that is by the way. It suffices that twenty men, not one of whom I had ever seen before, welcomed a total stranger, and both at that moment and in the long months which were to elapse before various rearrangements began to scatter us, proved the warmest of friends. Twenty-one of us shared our down-sittings and our uprisings in hut six. There might have been an even number, twenty-two, but one bed's place was monopolized by a stove, which in winter consumed coke and, in summer, was the repository of old newspapers and orange-peel. The hut accordingly presented a vista of twenty-one beds, eleven along one wall, and ten along the other, the stove and its pipe being the sole interruption of the symmetrical perspective. Above the beds ran a continuous shelf, bearing the hut inhabitants' equipment, or at least that portion of it—great-coat, water-bottle, mess tin, etc., not continually in use. Below each bed its owner's box and his boots were disposed with rigid precision at an exact distance from the box, and boots, beneath the adjacent bed. In the ceiling hung two electric lights. These, with the stove, beds, shelves, boxes, and boots, constituted the entire furniture of the hut, unless you count an alarm clock, bought by public subscription and notable for a trick of tinkling faintly as though wanting to strike, but failing, in the watches of the night, hours before its appointed minute had arrived. That contained no other furniture whatever, and in those days did not seem to us to require any. In the autumn, when the daylight shortened and we could no longer hold our parliaments on a bench outside, a couple of deck-chairs were mysteriously imported, and, as the authorities remained unshocked, A small table also appeared, and was squeezed into a gap beside the stove. Some sybarite even goaded us into getting up a fund for a strip of linoleum to be laid in the aisle between the beds. This was done. I do not know why, for personally I have no objection to bare boards. I suppose linoleum is easier to keep clean than wood. And that aisle, tramped on incessantly by hobnail boots, which in damp weather were, as to their soles and heels, mere bulbous trophies of the alluvial deposits of the neighborhood, was sometimes far from speckless. But to me the strip of linoleum made our hut look remotely like a real room in a real house. It was a touch of the conventional which I never cared for, and I only subscribed to it when I had voted against it and been overborne. An extraordinary proposition, that we should inaugurate a plant in a pot on the stove's lid in summer, was, I am glad to say, negatived. It would have been the thin end of the wedge. We might have arrived at Japanese fans and photograph frames on the walls. Not that our company officer would have tolerated any nonsense of that kind. Punctually at eight-thirty, after the second parade of the day, he marched through each hut inspecting and calling the attention of the sergeant-major to any detail which offended his sense of fitness. On wet mornings, instead of parading outside, each man stood to his cot, and thus the comments of the company officer as he went down the aisle were audible to all. Stiffly drawn up to attention, we wondered anxiously whether he would notice anything wrong with our buttons, boots, or belts, or whether he would spot the books and jam jars hidden behind our overcoats on the shelves. Nothing so decadent and civilian as a book, and certainly nothing so unsightly as a jam jar, must be visible on your barrack room shelf. It is sacred to equipment and particularly to the folded great coat. The art of folding might have been the title of the first lesson of the many so good naturedly imparted to me by my new comrades. There was, I learnt, a right way and a wrong way to fold all things foldable. The great-coat, for instance, must at the finish of its foldings, when it is placed upon the exactly middle spot above your bed's end, present to the eye of the beholder a kind of flat-topped pyramid, whose waistline, if a pyramid can be said to own a waist, is marked by the belt with the three polished buttons peeping through. The belt must bulge. Neither to the right nor to the left, the pyramidal edifice of great coat must not lull it must sit up prim and firm. And unless all your foldings of the great coat, from first to last, have been deftly precise, no pyramid will reward you. But a flabby trapezium, the belt will sag, its buttons won't come centrally and indeed the whole edifice of unwieldy-cloth will topple off its perch on the narrow shelf, which was designed to refuse all lodgment for the property of persons who had unsound ideas on the subject of compact storage. The second series of folderies to which the novice was initiated concerned themselves with his bedding. This consisted of a mattress, three blankets, and a pillow. It is an outfit at which no one need turn up his nose. I never spent a bad night in army blankets, though when out on leave, I am sometimes a victim of insomnia between clean, cold sheets. But the moment the reveille uplifted you from your couch, that couch had to be made ship-shape according to rule. No finicky airing. The mattress must be rolled up, with a pillow as its core, and placed at the end of the bed. On top of it a blanket, folded longwise and with the ends hanging down, was laid neatly. On top of that, you put the other two blankets, folded quite otherwise. Then you brought the first blanket's ends over and reversed the resultant bundle and pressed it down into a thin stratified parallelogram with oval ends. The strata of the said parallelogram viewed from the aisle, must show no blanket edges, only curves of the blanket's folds. The edges, if visible at all, must face inwards, not outwards. Correct folding, to be sure, gave no visible edges, viewed from either side, and once you caught the knack, correct folding was just as easy as incorrect, though there were temperaments which did not find it so, and which rebelled against these niceties i was afterwards to learn that this mania for matching if mania be indeed a legitimate word for a custom based on common-sense principles and seldom carried to the extremes which the recruit has been led to fear obtains not only in the army but also in the nursing profession not long after i became a ward orderly i got a wigging from my sister because i had not noticed that every pillow-case of a ward's beds must face towards the same point of the compass the pillows on the vista of beds must be placed in such a manner that the pillow-case mouths are all of them turned away from any one entering the ward's door similarly the overlap of the counterpanes must all be of exactly the same depth and caught up at exactly the same angle the resulting series of pairs of triangles all ending at exactly the same spot in each bedstead these trifles reveal at a glance the professional touch in a ward and are i understand not by any means the insignia of a military as distinct from a civilian hospital they may or may not contribute to the comfort of the patient but they betoken the captaincy of one whose methodicalness Will another, in other and less visible respects most emphatically benefit him. Our hut life was something more than a mere folding up of bedding on bedsteads and great coats on shelves. After midday dinner, it was allowable to unroll the mattress, make the bed, and rest thereon, which most of us, by that time, having been on the run since six o'clock parade, were very ready to do. There was half an hour to spare before a two o'clock parade and a precious half-hour it was snores rose from some of the beds where students of the war had collapsed beneath the newspapers which they had meant to read desultory conversation enlivened those corners where the denizens of the hut were energetic enough to polish their boots or sew on buttons the one or two men who happened to be going out on pass we were allowed one afternoon per week were putting on their putties and brushing up the metal buttons of their walking-out tunics, otherwise known as their square-push suits. The buttons of their working tunics had, of course, been burnished before parade. The correct employment of button-sticks, and of the magic cleaner called Soldier's Friend, the polishing of one's out-of-use boots and their placing on the floor with tied laces, and with their toes in line with the bed's legs, the substitution of lost braces buttons by bulldogs, the furbishing of one's belt, the propping up of the front of one's cap with wads of paper in the interior of the crown, the devices whereby non-spiral putties can be coaxed into a resemblance of spiral ones, and caused to ascend in corkscrews above trousers which refuse to tuck unlumpily into one's socks. These, and a host of other matters, always kept a proportion of the hut-dwellers awake and busy and loquacious, even in the somnolent, post-prandial half-hour before two o'clock. But it was at night, at bedtime, that the hut became generally sociable. Lights out sounded at ten-fifteen, and at ten-ten we were all scrambling into our pajamas. In winter our disrobing was hasty. In summer it was an affair of leisure, and deshabille, roamings to and fro in the aisle, and gossip. When the bugle blew and the electric light suddenly ceased to glow, leaving the hut in a darkness, broken only by the dim shapes of the windows and the red of cigarette ends, many of us still had to complete our undressing. We became adepts at doing this in the dark, and so disposing of the articles of our attire, that they could be instantly retrieved in the morning. Once, between the blankets, conversation at first waxed rather than waned. The night wardmaster, whose duty it was to make the round of the orderly's huts, disapproved of conversation after lights out, and was apt to say so, loudly and menacingly, when he surprised us by popping his head in at the door. But, well, the night wardmaster always departed in the long run, and then uprose, between bed and bed, those unconclusive debates in which the masculine soul delight—theology, woman, victuals, politics, art, the press, sport, marriage, money, and sometimes even the war. Likewise the purely local topics of sisters and their absurdities—our officers, the other huts, what the sergeant-major said, why vads can't replace male orderlies what this morning's operations look like whether an officer's ward or a men's ward is the nicer who deserves stripes CO's parade and its terrors advantages of volunteering for night duty the cushy job of being in charge of a sham lunacy case other cushy jobs less cushy than they sounded and so forth until at last protest began to be voiced by the wearier folk who wanted silence silence it was except for the thunder of occasional passing trains in the nearby railway cutting these had little power to disturb tucked in the brown army blankets which at first sight looked so hard and so prickly we slumbered the twenty-one of us as one man until with a cruel jolt at five-fifteen that wretched alarm-clock crashed forth at summons, for the fastidious few, who liked to rise in ample time to bathe and shave before early parade. Sometimes I was of that virtuous man, and sometimes I wasn't, but either way I hated the alarm-clock at five-fifteen, though not so virulently as did those members of the hut, who never by any chance dreamt of rising until five to six. These gentry had reduced the ritual of dressing, and of rolling up their bedding, to a speed at which it might almost be compared to expert juggling. The quickness of the hand deceived the eye. At five minutes to six you would see the juggler asleep on his pillow, in blissful innocence. At six he would be on parade, as correctly attired as you were yourself, and having left behind him in the hut, a bed as neatly folded as yours. The world is sprinkled with people who can do this kind of thing, and our hut was blessed with its due leaven of them. But I would not assert that they never had to put some finishing touches, either to their dress or to their hut-equipment foldings, before the company officer's tour of inspection at eight-thirty. It sufficed that they would pass muster at six o'clock, when appearances are less minutely important and the man who never rises till 5.55 detests an alarm clock that whirs at 5.15. The hour at which the alarm clock should be set to detonate was one of our few acrimonious subjects of argument. I have even known it upset a discussion on a woman. But the early risers had their way, and the clock continued to be set for half an hour in front of reveille. The harsh vibration of the alarm at one end of the day, and the expiry of the lights-out talks at the other, these events marked the chief time divisions in our hut life. While we were absent at work, our interests were many and scattered, but the hut was a nucleus for communal bonds of union, which evoked no little loyalty and affection from us all. On the May morning when I first beheld that corrugated iron abode, I thought it looked inviting enough but I did not guess how fond I was to grow of its barn-like interior, and of the sportive crew who shared its mathematically allotted floor-space. Next war, one optimist suggested during a typical lights-out seance, let's all enlist together again. There were protests against the implied prophecy, but none against the proposition as such. That is the spirit of hut comradeship, a spirit which no alarm clock controversies can do aught to impair for though five fifteen a m is an hour to test the temper of a troop of twenty-one saints ten fifteen p m will bring geniality and garrulousness to twenty-one sinners chapter two